Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as always, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you've got one for us. I... Um, <laughs> for context, we're recording this on the 23rd of August, and two days ago, um, a music video dropped, and Andy has opinions. I very much do. You know, we've talked about Coheed and Cambria uh, extensively on this show, and I don't think we've talked about a whole lot of, like, 80s super hits. But, but Alex, <laughs> have you heard Jesse's Girl a hundred times, a million times in your life, just as I have? Oh, sure. Yeah, Rick Springfield. It's a classic. He, he, I love Rick Springfield because Rick Springfield is one of the two cases of a two-hit, is one of the handful of cases of a two-hit wonder. So he does. He never appears on one-hit wonder list because he had another hit. But Jesse's Girl is his biggest hit, and it's the one that everyone remembers. So, yes, I am very familiar with Rick Springfield's <laughs> Jesse's Girl. Sure, of course. Um, and so, yeah, two days ago, Coheed and Cambria released a, a, a random sequel called Jesse's Girl 2. And <laughs> I'm just sitting here bemused and perplexed and delighted because I can't think of another instance where a contemporary music group writes a sequel song to a completely unrelated artist 40 years after that song was big and then completely subverts the message and tone of the original song. Because for those of you who, who haven't listened, if, if you want to pause and go check it out real quick, Jesse's Girl 2, basically, the entire story is Rick Springfield gets Jesse's Girl, and then it's 40 years later, and he's unhappily married with three kids, regretting every decision, and, like, Jesse's Girl turns out to be kind of a psycho. Like, what the hell? So I can give you an example of a case where a band did a sequel song and it's not much better. <laughs> um, are you familiar with the John Lennon song, God? Um, not enough to be able to pick out its tune. I mean, quite honestly, if it's not imagined, then I'm not super big on Lennon's solo stuff. No, that's fair. It's not a good song. Like it was, it was, it was a big song for him. A lot of people point to it as like an important song. In my opinion, it's not a good song. It's off of the John Lennon Plastic Ono Band album. It was released in 1970. It was like I think that was John Lennon's first album post Beatles. Like, and and most people, if you're like even like meh kind of John Lennon fan, it's the one where he has the whole section where he's like, I don't believe in Beatles, I don't believe in Kennedy, I don't believe in Zimmerman, I just believe in me. Like, it's... God, it sucks. It's such a shitty song. <laughs> um, I hate this song. Um, uh, David Bowie actually referenced it in, I think, the song Afraid, where he does say, I do believe in Beatles. Um, but that's not what I'm mentioning here. Um... So 18 years after that song, U2 did the song God Part 2 off the Rattle album. Hmm. And it's, okay. 
I, I don't want to call it a sequel song because it's not. The point of it is it's supposed to be like a continuation of it. Like Bono writes it as a continuation of these like things he does not believe in, etc. So it's not really a sequel. It's more like you 2 trying to like pick it up 18 years later. And the thing is, like, U2 is not the only band that did this. There's a few different bands that have done God Part Two songs. Uh, Christian uh, artist Larry Norman did a song called God Part Three on an album that's supposed to be a sequel to the U2 one, and nobody cares because <laughs> nobody really like. Unless you are a Christian rock fan, you're not really listening to Larry Norman. But yeah, I can name one case where 18 years later. U2 did a sequel continuation to a John Lennon song, but they did not, like, reverse it the way Coheed did on this one. Also, they didn't have Lennon on it. Rick Springfield is on this Coheed song. Yes, he is. He is on the song. He is in the music video. Uh, he is looking amazing for 71, I gotta yeah, say. Yeah, he looks good. Like, he looks good. He looks 55. But, yeah, just, I, I mean, bless him. Bless these fucking rock geniuses so much they're keeping busy they're doing stuff like a month or so ago i sent you a completely different music video where like claudio took part in this massive mashup cover of anthem from rush which had like people from mastodon and i want to say um dream theater and just a whole bunch of people like prog rock people prog yeah prog rock people uh you know giving a shout out to the grand poppies of prog rock um i saw claudio was working on prizefighter inferno stuff like God damn, the, the man is keeping busy. My understanding, and this is totally unfounded, but like it seems like a couple weeks ago, Claudio and Rick Springfield had this really bizarre Twitter exchange where Claudio was like, hey, what are you up to, man? You want to just like hang out, shoot the shit? I'd, I'd love to hear your thought process on writing Jesse's Girl. And they wind up fangirling over each other on Twitter a little bit. And then this just comes out of nowhere. And it's... I don't know. I, I love it. I, I'm not mad at it. I'm just so perplexed. But really, it, it, it's the most coheed thing ever to, you know, take a, a pseudo love song like Jesse's Girl and just completely throw it on its head. The, the album art for the single looks like something out of Friday the 13th with, you know, a man sitting in a couch with demonic three kids and an evil looking wife in the kitchen behind him. It's very, it, it makes a lot of sense aside from the fact that it's utterly ridiculous, but I loved it. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on just the bizarre process. Cause I'm not mad at it. I'm, I'm never mad at a se sequel song. I'm never mad at a continuation of a story. It's just so fucking weird. Here's the thing that, okay. So something that stood out in my mind very quickly there is a reference to another uh, 80s one-hit wonder song right, in it. Right. There's a random-ass line where Claudio Sanchez sings, so I changed my number to 8675309. Here's the stupid part about that. That's a Tommy Tutone song, right? Right. Uh, and that is a one-hit wonder. Like, no one knows any other Tommy Tutone songs. I don't know any other Tommy Tutone songs. And the thing is... Jesse's girl and um, Jenny, which is the eight six seven five three zero nine song three zero five song. Um, wait a minute, 
8675305 or 309. So so the, so the song is 309 for some reason the lyric is change my number to 8675305 which I think is like the point of the lyric like he changed his number from the famous one but it, it it's weird. <laughs> Wait, so is the idea that Rick Springfield in the original Jesse's Girl, who later is Claudio Sanchez in the sequel song, was in fact Tommy Tutone talking to Jenny. Wait, Jenny's number was supposed to be eight six seven five three zero nine. This this you this shared universe <laughs> of eighties like minor hits is getting really confusing here. But like I saw that reference, and in my head, the thought that I immediately had was just like, oh well, everyone thinks that. The guy who did Jesse's Girl also did Jenny. Like, everyone thinks that. Anyone who doesn't, like, care about the names of the artists always... It's like how people think that Bob Marley did Don't Worry, Be Happy. Right, when it was Ziggy. I, I, I'm, I... What? Was it, was no. It, was it, it not it, Ziggy Marley? It was Bobby McFerrin, dude. Well, there you go. I'm proving your point. Bobby, <laughs> it was American jazz artist Bobby McFerrin. But people hear, like, a Jamaican accent and automatically think it's Bob Marley. Well. <laughs> you know Steeler's Wheel did Stuck in the Middle, right? That it's not Bob Dylan. <laughs> yes, but I only know that because I've seen Reservoir Dogs, like, 20 times. Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. Yeah, no, and they're just making fun of Bob Dylan, but like, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh my heart. Um, so yeah, there's this random ass reference, which is very confusing to me. I'm I'm not even gonna front. Um, I completely lost my point because of what you just said about Ziggy Marley and Bob. <laughs> Oh my god! Well, I think I think the point is it, it, it's absolutely bizarre, and I'm like, I'm reading. So the lyric is, "Oh, so I changed my number to eight six seven five three zero five. That didn't, that didn't, that didn't stop her. She wouldn't let me leave her house alive. I'm, I'm sure it's just like they needed a phone number that ended in five, and went. This will sound cool. <laughs> Because they didn't want to do a slant rhyme? It's really confusing, you guys. Like, And and plus, I'm not going to lie to you. I, I listened to the lyrics as I was watching the music video, and I'm like, okay, this sounds like a horror sequel. This yes. sounds like, oh, Jesse's girl's going to murder him. But then Rick Springfield has the third verse, and it's literally, we're married now, house job, three kids, dreaming of what life could have been. Yeah, I mean... And I... I'm just like, <laughs> what what is... Like, is she is she just like nuts and you couldn't let go are you dissatisfied with your suburban life it doesn't match up it's the opposite of 1985 for bowling for soup it's it's the it's the spouse of the girl in that song like thinking the same exact thing because like you know and and this is the the big rick springfield hook is he ends his lyrics saying stranded on the ifs and maybes had i left that monster in the 80s and like everyone leaned into the monster thing for the artwork and and all of that and it's just like this is this is really weird y'all but yeah it's it's it totally like i'm never gonna be able to listen to jesse's girl the same way because now it's like this this setup to a tragedy 
Um, mm. Very weird. Totally worth commenting on. Um, but I, I wanted to break that down with you before we got into the, the meat of the episode. And thank you so much for doing that. I love that we got an entire douchebag buffer out of one song and music video. Oh, I had no doubt that we were going to. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Should we get started? We should. And, and just to that point, Alex, our first ever recording, which we were never going to release, was three hours long. Like, yeah, we can talk. Yeah, no. We For all y'all who don't know, the first time we tried to record this, I think we talked about this on the show before, we decided to try and do... Two loves, one of one each, two hates, one each, and a question. And we were like, maybe we can, hopefully we can get at least an hour out of this. And we did. We got at least an hour. And then we finished that recording and just kind of went, you know, it should be one and one. It should. It, it needs to be one and one. It, sh- it should be one and one. And and we we changed the format. And Alex, would you like to explain what that format got changed to? Sure. So our format uh, for all the episodes that are not that one that we uh, have buried and will never show you unless I don't know you pay us or something. Um, I think all the info on it's out of date anyway. Anyway. Um, the format of the show is that every episode we do three segments. We do one love topic. We take turns on that. We do one hate topic. We also take turns on that. Opposite turns, if you will. And then we take one relationship question from uh, preferably you, our beautiful audience, which you can send in to us. We'll give you that info at the end of the show. Uh, or to from the internet. And uh, that's the kind of question we got coming up. That'll be an interesting one. And this time, I think it's my turn for the love. So, Andy... As I like to do, uh, I'm going to open with a question, and I want to ask you, dear boy, darling of my heart, which version of Rob Reiner comes to mind first for you when the name is just said? So the version that comes to me when you bring up Rob Reiner is like... Hollywood's fun uncle director. Like, I I think about Rob Reiner, the director, before I think of anything else. Rob Reiner, the actor. And specifically, I think about The Princess Bride and how, like, he made maybe one of the most perfect movies of all time. You can die, too, for all I care. Oh. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley. What have I done? Time. I absolutely 100% adore that. I love that for you, like, you look at Rob Reiner as a... And I shouldn't be surprised that you look at Rob Reiner as a director um, before anything else, because... You are a film guy, and I think that Rob Reiner as a director has probably made the biggest imprint that, you know, your average non-movie geek isn't really aware of. Mm-hmm. So I really, really like that that is your answer. Um, I'm going to be upfront with you. My answer to that question, I think, I think personally, is Rob Reiner in All in the Family. It's Meathead. Sure. It is it is it is the Michael Stivic character 
from All in the Family being the liberal voice arguing with Archie Bunker. Because I think that was the first visual I had for him. Um, which I'll get into. But, um... Interesting. And you go straight to Princess Bride. Like... Hmm. Well, and I'll, I'll tell okay. you, I'll tell you real quick, like, you know, you told me we were going to talk Rob Reiner and like Rob Reiner is a name that has always sort of been in the oeuvre um, in terms of like classic American directors. But I, I sat here and reviewed his filmography, both as an actor and a director, just so that I could see like, okay, wait, is there some, is there some gem that comes to me first? And we'll talk about this more later. The biggest thing is Rob Reiner has made a lot less movies. Like he's, he's done less projects than I thought based off of how like tucked away, well-known his name is in the back of my brain. Sure. And that makes, and and, you know, I think there's also going to be something to be said about where he came from. He definitely did not start in the industry without connections. Uh, not by a long shot. So I think he could kind of afford to take his time with things. But, okay. Um, tell you what, we'll get into it, and I'll be very interested to see where this conversation goes. Because I don't think you and I have ever talked about Rob Reiner much, despite what a huge fan of his I have always been. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, cool. So for those of you who don't know, um, this episode, my love topic, I'm going to be talking about Rob Reiner. For some basic background, Rob Reiner is a writer, director, actor, and activist. He's the son of actress Estelle Reiner and the renowned comedian and, tele- and television writer-director Carl Reiner. Um, for those of you who don't know Carl Reiner, you know the Dick Van Dyke show. He created that. That is that is Carl Reiner's baby. He, he made that show. And he is a legend in old Hollywood. Um, his son, Rob... Became, kind of followed in his dad's footsteps, didn't become a comedian, but um, did become an actor and writer and director. Uh, his big break, I mean, he did a lot of bit parts for a while. He was actually, he played a delivery boy in an, old, in an episode of uh, Batman 66. I don't know if you knew that, Andy. I didn't until about uh, 20 minutes ago now. Yeah, like he was just a very tiny part, but like he, he did a few of those. But his big breakout role was playing Michael Stivic on All in the Family, uh, which was a show that I watched in syndication really weirdly, like, out of order in a crazy way, but (laughs) I always loved, loved, loved. The best part of any episode of All in the Family, as far as I concerned, as far as I was concerned, was Archie and Michael having arguments about any current events going on at the time. The only thing potentially better than that would be Edith shutting Archie down with just, like, a couple of words because she didn't get it and didn't care. But that's that's a whole separate thing. Um, apart from being an actor, Rob Reiner, as you alluded to, Andy, has largely, for a huge bulk of his career, been a director. And he's done movies ranging from When Harry Met Sally to The Princess Bride to Stand By Me, A Few Good Men, This Is Spinal Tap, and Misery. Like, there's a wide range between those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of that, he's done multiple appearances in other movies and TV show. He he had a part in Sleepless in Seattle and The First Wives Club. Uh, he had smaller parts uh, on New Girl 
and he did like one episode of 30 Rock where he played him where he played a really hilarious version of himself. Uh, and recently, he was on a show that we've talked about a little bit on this show called Hollywood, which is a Netflix show that an old friend of ours is currently on. So Rob Reiner was a pretty essential featured character in that. Yeah. Um, and then not to not to downplay this, but as an activist, he's been a vocal spokesman, fundraiser, and donator of money to liberal causes ranging from anti-smoking, uh, for which South Park lampooned him. We can talk, definitely talk about that South Park episode. I assume you're familiar with it. Um, are you familiar with that South Park, Andy? I don't know if I am. I'm looking it up now, and I'm sure I'm going to see something, and it'll spark him. Uh... It'll spark something. Okay, see, yeah, I'm I'm looking up what Rob Reiner looked like, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I remember this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, butter. <laughs> oh, terrible. Um, he's also um, done activism for same-sex marriage and climate change, early childhood education, all the way up to investigating the current president of the United States for Russian collusion. Mm-hmm. Um, all things he's brought his attention to. So. If I want to get to the core of, like, what I think about Rob Reiner, um, I do feel like I should start with All in the Family, just because, like, that was, in a lot of ways, the first image I had of him. But the thing is, at the same time that I was watching that, I was also getting really into movies like Spinal Tap. Sure. Which he directed, but he also appears in. Kind of as a fictionalized ver. I don't think his name is Rob Reiner in that movie. I don't remember, actually. But he appears in multiple scenes. He is the guy that Nigel is talking to during the These Amps Go to Eleven scene. Like, he's the one asking, why don't you just make ten louder? That is Rob Reiner's voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One louder. Why don't you just make ten louder and make ten be the top number and make that a little louder? And I don't always necessarily know if I put that together right away. Like, that that meathead, as he appeared in the 70s, where he was, let's be fair, thin, with, like, the shoulder-length hair, and talking usually pretty loudly as he argued with his father-in-law. Yeah. Was also, like, the very nice documentarian who's talking to Nigel from Spinal Tap and just being like... Oh yeah, no guys. I, I'm, it's 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 a really interesting situation, you know. These amplifiers. Uh, <laughs> I feel like why, why why is it that you don't just make ten louder? Like he's very he's very soft spoken in that, and I didn't have that connection sure. at first. But I grew up on. I, I was really into Spinal Tap. I grew up on The Princess Bride. Um, Andy, you and I did theater in the same in the same high school. I assume you had this project. I think we might have talked about it on the show before. I'm not really sure. But I remember our high school drama class having having a project where we had to present on a director. We had to we had to present on the oeuvre of a particular director. And we had to pick the director, come up with clips, talk about their style, talk about their history. I talked about Rob Reiner. And I showed clips of Spinal Tap, and I showed clips of Princess Bride, and A Few Good Men, and I think When Harry Met Sally. Just to try and illustrate, I wish I could get my hands on Misery, because to me, Misery is the biggest outlier of his entire oh, absolutely. Like, career. Absolutely, yeah. 
And I argue Misery might be the best Stephen King adaptation of any Stephen King adaptation. I think there is a legitimate argument for that. I think a lot of that comes down to Rob Reiner's direction. Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's a lot to comment on there. Um, in, in no particular order, by the time I had to do that project in high school, I don't remember if um, it had just been swapped to pick an actor or... I'll, I'll say this. I don't remember doing a project on a director. I remember doing that same project on Vincent Price, and and that'll probably be a topic in, at some later point. Um, I have seen maybe... 20 minutes of all in the family in my entire life. Okay. Um, it, it, it was never a show that was on in my house. Um, if a sitcom was playing, it was most likely Frasier, um, or just shoot me if, if I was alone and left a daytime television. Um, okay. So all in the family for me has always been presented as an academic, as an academic thing, as a, as a groundbreaking like show for social issues. So, so we're going to watch this clip where Archie and um, Sammy Davis, Sammy Davis jr. Like have a conversation about race, or we're going to watch this clip of the episode where Ethel uh, gets PTSD from a home invader. Like it was something I watched in film and TV classes more than it was ever actually something I watched myself. So I actually have next to no connection to Michael Stivic. Okay. And I'm glad that you do because we're able to bring these, these counterpoints and these different, uh, looks into everything for me rob reiner is a director who who does a couple of acting projects on the side like you know looking at looking at 30 rock where he plays himself looking at south park where he is represented as himself um, <laughs> okay. that that is very much more what i'm familiar with and so i'm i'm delighted to be talking to you from different sides of the page here no i appreciate that and i and Something I really want your perspective on. I figured you would probably know him best as a director. As far as figuring out style for Rob Reiner, it can be a little tricky because, you know, he's not... You've got your directors, like, um, just, just to pick on him, Scorsese. Scorsese basically does two kinds of movies, more or less. Yes. He either does intense, like, psychological troubled villain but you're you know it's from the villain's perspective so they're kind of the hero kind of things um scorsese is basically trying to remake the godfather in every from every angle he possibly can um or he's doing documentaries about the rolling stones yeah (laughs) that's basically the two movies scorsese makes and the thing is he's great at them he is great at doing those two kinds of movies. Um, but ro- but you're telling me that, like, or I'm telling you that the guy who made When Harry Met Sally, arguably the best rom-com ever made, also directed Kathy Bates and her performance in Misery, which is one of the most terrifying I argue that I would rather deal with Hannibal Lecter than Kathy Bates in Misery. 
Like, yeah, that is... you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I would be safer with Hannibal Lecter, whether it's Mads Mikkelsen or Anthony Hopkins, I would be safer with Hannibal Lecter than I would be... I don't even remember her character's name. I just remember Kathy Bates is terrifying me. Oh, you don't remember this, Annie Wilkes? That was it. It's been a minute. That's fair. But, the operation was called hobbling. But yeah, like that's that is one of the most groundbreaking performances. And Rob Reiner directed that. I'm not going to give him all the credit. Kathy Bates is brilliant. Kathy B- Bates is a fucking genius. But like, well, the same dude did both of those. And, and real quick, to your point, he did those movies back to back. So he went from one immediately into the other. Who does that? I mean, so, so yeah, let's, uh, this is probably what I can talk the most about. Like for, for 10 years, Rob Reiner did nothing but pump out some of the most classic keystone to their genre movies in American cinema. And I will stand on that hill and, and fight on it because his first movie as director was 1984 Spinal Tap, arguably the greatest mockumentary ever made. Yes, absolutely. Uh, 1985, something called The Sure Thing, which I know nothing about. It's uh, had John Cusack. I'm going to skip it for this purpose. Uh, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. 1986, Stand By Me. Classic coming-of-age story. Arguably the classic coming-of-age story. Um, 1987, Princess Bride. I just said a perfect movie. (laughs) One of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, maybe the most, maybe the best family adventure movie ever made. I mean, may, balance it against Indiana Jones. I might pick Princess Bride. I really will. Um, two years later, 1989, When Harry Met Sally, as you just said, like maybe the best rom com ever made, or certainly like like the the grandfather of all rom coms. What Halloween is to slashers when Harry Met Sally is to rom-coms. Yeah. So a year later, Misery, my favorite Stephen King book. I will agree with you, probably the best Stephen King adaptation put to film. And then uh, 1992, A Few Good Men, maybe the best, like, maybe the best. Military drama ever. Yeah. I I was going to say maybe the best courtroom movie ever. Um, and and certainly the best military courtroom movie ever. Um, and, and so that is, that is, what is it? Eight movies in 10 years. Yeah. Seven movies in 10 years. And aside from the sure thing, like those are all touchstones of American cinema. Those are all classics, capital C classics. Um, looking down his career beyond that, and this this speaks to my point uh, earlier, it, it gets a lot more, a lot of stuff I've never heard of, a lot of stuff that certainly doesn't have the same staying power. He did The Bucket List yeah. in 2007, which is a delightful movie. Um, That's a fun movie. That's, yeah. It's, it's kind of nice to think that, you know, uh, Jack Nicholson came back after A Few Good Men and he's just like, oh, it's 15 years later. You want to do uh, you want to do a buddy comedy with Morgan Freeman? Absolutely. Um, 
So, you know, I, I without going down through it, it's it's a lot of stuff that, like, maybe it, it matters to some people really specifically. I can't say that... I, I can't say that post-1992, his career holds up. But for that eight-year span before then, like, it is prolific in my mind the work that this guy put out and the quality of every single film in that span of time yeah and i'd I'd agree with that and and so you might have caught in in our discussion just now listeners like like no two of those movies are the same genre like the closest would be uh I mean, Spinal Tap and When Harry Met Sally are both comedy leaning. Like, yeah, I mean, like, okay, um, the sure thing is like an adventure comedy romance. So I guess in a way that it it's not it's not like fantastical the way The Princess Bride is, um, and it's not a romance in the same way When Harry Met Sally is. But I guess it kind of plays with some of those same topics. But yeah, I mean... Yeah. Two of these are Stephen King adaptations, but only one of them is a Stephen King horror movie. Right. Yeah, I mean, so so to your point, like, Scorsese has been making crime dramas pretty much his entire career when he's not making Rolling Stones documentaries. Michael Bay yeah. only knows how to make one kind of movie. Ari Aster. And he makes it. He makes it better than anyone. <laughs> he does. Ari Aster only knows how to make one kind of horror film we've seen so far, and they're two of the most amazing horror films I've ever seen. But like Ari Aster yeah. isn't coming out with a comedy. <laughs> well, so I've always said like, there's 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 kind of two types of artist, um, and and the way that I always like to kind of compare it is, you can be ACDC, or you can be. David Bowie. Sure. Actually, I don't think I've ever said David Bowie. I think I've always said Madonna. You can be ACDC or you can be Madonna. ACDC does the same album every single time. Yeah. They it's three chords, it's riff rock, it's they are the biggest barroom band ever. They are a barroom band that gets to play arenas. They it's all minor pentatonic blues. It's all like 4-4 four, four time, the drummer's gonna do the same kind of backbeat, and they do it better than anyone. They are the pinnacle of that. Alternatively, Madonna has never done the same album twice. Madonna will do a country album, Madonna will do a Europop album, Madonna will do a rock album, Madonna will do a weird synth album. Madonna does whatever the fuck she wants. She never does the same album twice. David Bowie never did the same album twice. Yeah. But they all did weird kind of... They all played in so many different genres. So, you know, in a way, your Scorsese is your ACDC. And your Rob Reiner, at least for these first, you know, seven, eight movies, is basically, you know, your David Bowie or your Madonna. Let's just have him do anything. Anything? Anything. I'm going to posit something to you real quick. If... If Rob Reiner had only had an eight-year-long career, and in 1993 he had a heart attack, I would submit to you that he is the John Cazale of directors. Who is John Cazale? John Cazale is um, John Cazale is Frito Corleone. Oh, 
John, John, because so so I'll I'll elaborate on my point. Um, John, Cazale, Dog Day Afternoon, Deer Hunter. I'm looking him up now. John Cazale was in like five movies. Each one of them was uh, nominated for Best Picture. He was nominated for several awards, and then he died of cancer. But like, mm. he is the ultimate from an acting perspective. Burn short, burn bright career. Um, Interesting. And and so the point I was trying to make is if you uh, if you only look at the first eight years of Rob Reiner's career and it, it, it say nothing else ever came to be, say the man unfortunately passed away, I would say that that is from a directorial sense like the most prolific output in a quality per movie sense of any director. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. As it is, as it it is, he's still somebody who like just absolutely couldn't do wrong the first half of his career. And and I I I don't know these other movies. I don't know if they're all great gems or or if they're duds or whatever. Just the point is, the man's great. That's all I'm trying to say. No, I get it. And, and you know, I'm looking... Here's the thing. I'm also looking at his acting uh, resume. And it's funny because during that period of time where he was devoting so much of himself to directing all these classics, he only had... Let's see. He appeared... He appears in Spinal Tap in 84. Yep. He does... Uh, he has an... He's in the movie Throw Mama from the Train... Uh, in 87, that's, um, I've never seen that movie, but it's got like Danny DeVito, Billy Crystal in it. Um, and he's apparently in that. Um, he appears in Postcards from the Edge in 1990 and also plays the helicopter pilot in Misery. So he's appearing in his own movie there just for a little cameo. He's in Sleepless in Seattle in 93, the year after A Few Good Men. But the point is from 84... To 93, he's in th- he's in four movies. Two of them are his own movies. Yeah. One of them is just straight up a cameo. So he does very little acting. He's almost exclusively writing and directing in that time. And then come the 90s, 93, 94, he's in Bullets Over Broadway and Mixed Nuts. 95, he's in For Better or Worse or Bye Bye Love. First Wives Club in 96. It looks like he went back to acting. It really does. And I wonder if, I mean, I truly don't know if the guy just went, okay, I've made my mark. I don't need to really try at this level anymore ever. I can go back to doing this more fun thing. Maybe. I mean, I know he didn't do TV again um, with any kind of regularity until he was on New Girl. Mm-hmm. That's the first time he had a recurring TV part. Because he plays, um, and that's 2012, because he plays uh, Zoe Deschanel's father in that show. And by the way, I love New Girl, and I love his character in New Girl. He's great. His ex-wife is Jamie Lee Curtis, and the two of them have this tremendous divorced people chemistry. It's fantastic. That little girl I was talking about, her name isn't Yolanda. She's your daughter. I'll kill you! You're dead! You're dead! No, and he's... And I don't want to let things go without mentioning how great of an actor he is, but I, the thing I was really interested from you was the director's perspective. And I know we're coming up on 40 minutes here, so 
I want to, I do want to move forward um, just with the last little bits that I had, but I want to ask if you have any other notes about his directorial time. No, I, I think I've, I've really beaten the point into the ground. He's, he's probably one of the greatest American directors um, just for what he put out in a single decade. I'm, I'm absolutely not mad about that. Um, I do want to say just as a, as an, as a director, he puts my ass in a seat as an actor from all in the family, all the way to new girl and 30 rock and recently Hollywood, you know, they didn't talk about, no one ever talked about how he was like, he doesn't appear in the opening credits of Hollywood. There's no billing for Hollywood that says he's going to be in it. Right. He's in, I think like, I think it's, it's a what? 10 episode show. It's like he's in three episodes. Yeah, it's like a seven or eight episode because I remember thinking it was a weird amount of episodes. I think it's eight episodes and he's in half of them. Yeah, like he's not one of the main characters, but he regularly steals the scenes that he's in. He goes from being brackish and huge personality to humbled in a really interesting way by the end of the show. He's a fascinating character. I Rob Reiner puts my ass in a seat. Sure. I remember watching the South Park episode where they made fun of him. And the reason they made fun of him was because he of his anti-smoking activism. Because he's been an activist in multiple different ways. He's he's regularly appearing at Democratic events, fundraising. He endorsed Joe Biden. He endorsed Hillary Clinton, etc., etc. Um, South Park lampooned him because he did this anti-smoking campaign. And he was a very prominent anti-smoking person. And their joke for him was that, like... He's so fat that to get out of a car, he needs to yell for people to butter him and like put butter on the sides of his body and he will scream, butter, bring me butter. Right, and right. people will butter his sides. He'll get out <laughs> and make people feel like shit for smoking. And he'll just be like, I need you to not smoke because I don't like it. And like the South Park take was let people do what they want with their bodies. Rob Reiner, you're, you're a busy body, which like, Okay, Matt and Trey do a week to week thing, whatever. I'm I, I think I've made clear that my opinions on the creators of South Park are that, you know, I, I I've liked a lot of their work. And I also think they're very self important and take themselves as a lot smarter than they are. Um But you get lampooned for your activism on South Park, and then you turn around and you just deliver quality work constantly on top of... I I don't know. There's... The thing about Rob Reiner is I will always be happy to see him. I am happy to see his name as a credit. I am happy to see his face on a screen. I am happy to see anything that he is involved with. Even movies here that I've never seen, I would legitimately give them a chance just because Rob Reiner's name is attached to them. He is someone who I associate with, at the very least, a good experience... I didn't love the bucket list, but it was fine. I enjoyed it overall. At the very least, I'm going to like what Rob Reiner puts out. And in some cases, I'm going to find it life-changing and incredible. And that's the note that I want to end on for that. Perfect, man. You ready to move on? Yeah, let's go for it. So I I have the hate this week, and we're going to do something a little different. um, Because I was thinking on... Stuff that sticks in my craw. Alex, this week, I want to talk to you about something that I honestly used to love and only recently have come to re-examine and decide that I kind of hate it. 
And so I'm not I'm not quite positive what we're going to call this thing, but I want to talk to you about why I hate modern military shooter games. Uh, just to clarify, are those first person shooters? Right. It, it's been a minute since we've talked about video games as a whole, um, and I have opinions. <laughs> okay, let's get into them. Yeah, I, su- I suppose this point could be for like real-time strategy games as well but but really for simplicity i'm going to be leaning into and really examining the call of duty franchise okay but before that you know i want to ask we've discussed your history with video games and how there's a very definitive like stop point for you Mm -hmm. in your youth did you ever play any realistic modern shooter games um so we'll we might have to define terms here um, but let, so let me ask you this: Does Goldeneye count? Um, yes for my question, no for my hate. Okay, so like I owned an N sixty four, bothered my parents to hell with it, um, <laughs> but I played I played Goldeneye. I owned Goldeneye. I enjoyed Goldeneye. I played a few different of those like James Bondy type of first person shooter games. Uh, I think I had the. Um, God, there was a GameCube one that I think I had. I know I had Torok Evolution, which wasn't a realistic one. That was one where you were, like, shooting dinosaurs, but it was still a first-person shooter game. Right. But, uh, yeah. I definitely played... I played Goldeneye. I didn't... First-person shooters weren't my big genre. I okay. was There were a lot of... There were other types of games that I was more into on a general basis. But I, I played a few. I was familiar with them. I wasn't great at them, but I played them. Okay, that, that answers my question, so thank you so much. And that also helps me, like, really crystallize what I'm leaning into here and, and, and what I'm talking about. James Bond games, Turok, where you're fighting dinosaurs, these are not things that I have any problem with. Specifically, and I keep using the word, modern military shooter game which I think has become a subgenre within the first-person shooter game scene. Um, and, and, and so that's specifically why I'm going to be looking at Call of Duty mostly. And for anyone who is unfamiliar, um, Call of Duty as a franchise is a first-person shooter game series published by, published by Activision. Uh, it started in 2003 with the games focusing on World War II. And over the past... Uh, 17 years the series has released games set during the cold war futuristic future wars and modern contemporary conflicts and i really lean into that second part because i don't have as much of a problem really with games set during world war ii or world war one or even the Vietnam War. Because those games are so historical. They are they are separated from what I would call current events to the point where okay. it becomes more acceptable to me. I, I've played dozens of World War II shooter games. You know, I've I've virtually stormed Normandy Beach several times. <laughs> Um, and I really don't have as much of a problem with that. And and I also don't have a problem with stuff set in the future. I don't have a problem with 
the Halo series or sure. even something cartoony like Fortnite, which is contemporary looking people and weapons, but is such a fantastical, bizarre, nonsensical, there's barely any plot to Fortnite anyway, sort of setup. There's plot to Fortnite? There's plot to Fortnite, but not in the mode anybody plays. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's its whole separate thing. Fortnite was a game that released a multiplayer mode, and, and the multiplayer mode, which has no actual story, is what people talk about when they talk about Fortnite. So. Okay. What I want to really lean in on, the touchstone of the Call of Duty franchise is 2007's Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare. And modern warfare was set during, mo- like like real. It was set during two thousand seven. It was set mm. in the Iraq War conflict. You know, you you didn't actually like go to Iraq, although maybe you did. It's been a minute since I've played it. But you went to a Middle Eastern country and fought. Uh, whoever the opposing force is there, then you run around and you start fighting Russians. Uh, the sequel, which came out, I want to say in 09 or 10, uh, had a, a storyline in which Russia invades America. And so modern day contemporary America is invaded by modern day contemporary Russia. And that's who you fight. exactly and and that's that that specifically is is what i want to look at and and have some grievances with today okay let's talk about it remember no russian um the other thing so so the other thing to get into with modern warfare is it it came out basically right around the time where online console gaming became a viable thing. Um, It wasn't just gather in your buddy's basement and play Goldeneye or go to Mike Osborne's house and play Halo, but everybody's sitting in the living room. Um, Mm -hmm. this, This was when you could reasonably log on online and play, you know, for hours and hours and hours with with you know hundreds of people across the world, and blow their heads off with sniper rifles and run around and be merry. And I did that. I okay. did that without a second thought for a lot longer of my high school afternoons than I probably should have, honestly. Okay. And it was fun. It it was fun in in this meaningless grinding sort of way the call of duty games specifically are kind of insidious in that like you can get from level one to level 100 and and trick out your guns in different colors and and get skills and then when you hit level 100 you can reset the clock but you get like a a special medal so you go back to level one but now you're you're special for it and you can do that hundreds and hundreds of times. So they built this system where, like, no matter how much you play, you're never done with the game. There's always something to do. There's always reason to come back. And I played these games, and, and I never really thought much about it. I never considered the fact that I was living out a contemporary conflict. Now, partially, that's because, obviously, it is a little more 
fantastical having 20 people run around a quarry and shoot each other with assault rifles it's not exactly how that happens in wartime but no you would still have different teams and it would be randomly assigned. So sometimes, okay, you're playing as the United States and you're uh, fighting the uh, Republican guard. And then the next match, okay, now you're the Republican guard and you're fighting the Russians. Um, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and that's really like me. I, I can't remember if they called it the Republican guard or not, but you could definitely play as either the, Iraqi forces or just the nameless. Okay. I I've looked it up. The entire conflict does take place in an unnamed middle Eastern country. So they never say you're going to war with Iraq. You're never playing as the Republican guard, but you could play as the other team, the quote unquote, bad guys, the mm. nameless middle Eastern country. And yeah, like I said, I, I did this for years. I, I really enjoyed getting a hundred headshots with this one gun. And now I have like this tiger skin for the gun. So I'm, I'm running around with a pistol and it's, it's red and black and you know, it, it looks cool. Okay, great. I got the sticker. I got the thing. And so what bothers you about it? So that seems like what we're dancing. Right. Around. Absolutely. I, the last time I played Call of Duty, um, they they re-released this game. They they re-released Call of Duty for like four or five years ago, and they actually just re-release. So so they they re-released multiplayer in tw- in 2016, and they actually just released the exact game I'm talking about last year. But I haven't played that. Um, I the last time I played Call of Duty was 2016. And I played for like two weeks and got back into it and got back into that mindset of, okay, I'm running around this dilapidated airfield and I'm working my way up and I'm, I'm getting the green gun and now I've got the silver gun. And now I've got the special like little sniper scope that makes it look like a skull. Okay, cool. And I stopped because it just wasn't like... It wasn't the same. There was there was this new thing where I just kind of realized, like, oh, this is dark. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I never thought about it as a kid because I, I was a high schooler. This is what you did. You like, you played Call of Duty and then you you watched Twenty Four. And in my household, mm-hmm. that was an average Saturday night. Um. Mm-hmm. And since then, maybe because I got out of my parents' house, maybe because I'm a little older, a little wiser, I'm just sitting here going, holy shit, I don't, I don't want to play this, this game where I'm a contemporary military force fighting another contemporary military force in a real location. Like this is, this is too real. This is too, this this just makes my skin crawl a little bit. The reflection of what I am doing in my relaxation fantasy time. Cause it's still a game. It's still a game. Yeah. You do it to, to unwind and hang out and it's not supposed to be taken literally, but it's presented as something that's literal. Mm-hmm. And that is really what makes my skin crawl. Sure. 
I'm trying to remember. I remember reading forever ago some kind of write-up on kind of the the dirty secret of a lot of movies, specifically like war movies, is how involved the U.S. military is sure. with them. So it's sometimes it's things like, okay, Top Gun... In exchange for you getting to uh, use our aircraft to film your movie so that it looks authentic, uh, we get script notes. And we get the right to change or edit or remove things we think will be anti-military and work in material that will be pro-military, that will encourage people to think that the military is cool, maybe even want to join the military. This is not a secret. This is public knowledge. This is not a giant conspiracy. This is a straight-up quid pro quo. Just like, you know, in exchange for Aston Martin uh, loaning vehicles to a James Bond movie, you know, they might get a scene where someone compliments James Bond's Aston Martin, so that people will think Aston Martin is cool. Totally. Just like James Bond is cool. It's the same exact thing that companies do. Um, and, you know, you as an individual can decide whether or not you think it's gross for the military to be doing that. I do, but I've heard people who argue, people who don't have a problem with corporations doing that, going, there's no issue with the military doing it. It's the same deal. Um, okay, if that's your philosophy, I'm not going to actually argue with that because it's not my point right now. My point is, for video games, it's the same kind of shit. Right. Um, you know, we didn't talk about this during our gun culture discussion, but there is absolutely a realm of customization in firearms manufacturers where they know that certain clientele are really interested in owning the guns that look like the same guns that they have in their video games. I don't want to always bring it back to who makes the money off of this, but a little bit, think about who makes the money off of this. Who makes the money off of this? Um, And specifically what who is benefiting out of this 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 leads into a point that i have to bring up like modern military shooters are 100 a effective recruitment technique for the u.s military yes absolutely around the same time these games came out like people realized that you can't just have people show up at the recruitment center. You can't send a couple of privates to a high school. It it doesn't work as well. But if you target this thing that kids are doing for enjoyment, you glorify the, um, you glorify the American military in such a way where it's like, yeah, holy shit. I, you mean I can do this in real life and I can have this cool big ass gun and I can fly an Apache like, okay, yes, this does sound great to me. Um, yeah, it leads back to esports. Um, the U S army has its own esports team. <laughs> the U S army has its own esports team. Call of Duty, the game, is one of the most popular um, 
esports venues you can have to the point where the city of Orlando also has its own esports team specifically to play Call of Duty. They're called the Florida Mutineers. Their logo looks like Davy Jones from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It's actually pretty damn cool looking. Um, this is an effective recruitment technique, and that is fucking gross. The idea that these games have no reason to stop glorifying modern conflict uh, because that's how they're going to get the next, you know, batch of Chuck for the meat grinder. I, I truly hate that. And that's the difference to me, you know, like Fortnite, Overwatch, Halo, even you can make an argument the Call of Duty games that are set in the future. Certainly the Call of Duty games that are set during like World War One and Two are all something different. But this genre, this specific like, these are the conflicts that could happen now. Here's a game where North Korea invades. Here's a game where Russia invades. Here's a game where you go to uh, the Middle East and, and, you know, fight the bad guys. That, uh, that's gross. That's gross as hell. And I, I, I regret playing so many hours of this as a kid, mostly because I sit here and go, I, I could have done something else. I could have brushed up on Rob Reiner's filmography. Uh, <laughs> I could have played more Batman games. Um, but also I'm just sitting here like, I don't blame myself for not knowing any better. Cause I was a high schooler or whatever, but like this was, this was, nah, this was dark. I didn't, I, I don't look back on it fondly. I mean, again, at a certain level, you do need to have a certain degree of grace for your younger self. Yeah, of course. You know, I I just spent a bunch of time shitting on South Park's portrayal of Rob Reiner. I That was a, during a period of time when I watched South Park religiously and where their takes on a lot of things meant a lot to me. Right. And I have a... You know, it's funny. I, I think I'm highly critical of South Park on this show. I should state, I haven't watched the show in a very long time, but I am not someone who, like, decries the show as awful or tells people that there's anything really wrong with still watching it. I'm not really a fan anymore, but eh, beyond that. Sure. But I'm not going to sit here and beat myself up for not having a better understanding of why it was problematically libertarian and I didn't understand that or how toxic and solipsistic a lot of the takes on that show were like I was a kid I hadn't I hadn't learned a lot of shit yet same thing for you here I mean the, the good thing is you are now at a point where you do recognize it as being problematic and you're able to articulate the point in a different way. And Does that's, that make sense? Yeah, that's fair. I'm not, I'm not mad at myself for, for doing that. I don't think I was evil or I, 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 I certainly 
don't think I ever sat there and like really processed and felt good about, um, you know, shooting people that looked like they were Iraqi soldiers. I never, it was just like team a and team B. It might as well have been people that looked the same, but were wearing different colors as much as I was really processing it. But I, yeah, I, I look back on it and go, eh, I could have I could have done other stuff. I also played a shit ton of like um, virtual hockey, and that was also a lot of wasted hours where I could have just been maybe reading a book. I don't think I'm bad. I just I would have done those afternoons differently. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, to sit in the darkness for a little bit, um, just with that. Uh, I recently, I think I told you about this. Um, I don't, I don't remember if you saw it or not, but I told you to watch uh, Hassan Minhaj's comedy special, Homecoming King. Yes. Which um, you did watch that, right? Oh yeah. I think I. Okay, yeah. So it's a comedy special, uh, but in a lot of ways, it's really more of a one-man show. There is definitely a scene or a part of that comedy special where he talks about immediately post. 9-11 his his family getting their car vandalized and getting a phone call from a random stranger screaming at them where's Osama and I'm coming to cut you yeah. and his family's not even Afghani his family's not Saudi his family is Indian they're Indian Muslim but if you were to ask me, how likely do I think it is that that person who made that phone call to Hassan Minhaj's family anonymously, how likely it would be that they watched certain movies, certain TV shows, and played certain video games, if not right then, then in the months and years immediately following that, 24 doesn't hold up, y'all. Yeah. Homeland was a deeply evil show. Yeah. And we can love Mandy Patinkin <laughs> Thank for you. Yes. The Princess Bride a hundred times over. <laughs> I was making the same connection. <laughs> but he was still in Homeland. And as far as I know, has never decried anything in there. Yeah. Culture matters. Pop culture matters. And I'm not someone who's sitting here advocating censorship. I'm not. I'm advocating good taste. I'm advocating giving a shit about what you're consuming because the average thing people are consuming are not Lenny Bruce. They are not brilliant satire attempting to make hard truths of America known. They're bullshit that's easy to consume. And makes you not think about the world. It does your thinking for you. And it sounds like this kind of falls into that vein. I've never played a Call of Duty game. I haven't. Um, it never interested me. War games never really interested me. Um, just personal taste. Not there's That's not a stance. That's not a highfalutin opinion that's i sucked at first person shooters i sucked at goldeneye by the way i played it a lot but i sucked at it i much preferred like fighting and racing and adventure games sure. that was just me but like 
There's a reason why... I'm not concerned with violence. I'm concerned with who the violence is against, you know? A stormtrooper is one thing. A person who looks like someone on your block is another. Excellent That's point. I don't think I could. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I could uh, say it any better. You, you did remind me. I want to make one final thing clear. I I really don't care to be lumped in with the uh, violence in video games equates to violence in real life crowd. I firmly do not believe that. I I think that's a complete load of shit. But when violence against a specific peoples is not even tolerated, but like enforced and glorified by a real life, uh, government power through an entertainment basis to unsuspecting masses. Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad. Um, yeah. And so moving on into our question, which it didn't occur to me until just now leans into this hate kind of great. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Do you want to read it then? Um, sure. I'll go ahead. You, you found this. Um, I'm pretty sure this was on relationships.txt. Yes. Okay. So sorry for the long winded title. I don't know how to sum up my current situation any simpler than I did. This is a rather long winded story, but I'll try to keep it short. My dad had a baby with another woman when my mother passed away. That's my little half brother, Jake. Jake is living with our sister, Jenna, who is 33. Jenna took him in after my dad died and this other woman ended up in jail for drugs. As I said, long story. Jenna is by far the most qualified and financially stable person in the family at the time to raise a child slash teenager. Jake has been living with her since he was 11, so about four years. Jake has his first girlfriend, Yumna. Yumna is Arabic and Muslim. Jake and Yumna have known each other for a few years before they started to date, and I think she's been around since he was nine. This whole situation started a few months ago. My brother lost his job as a vet because of the pandemic and got evicted from his apartment. Polly went to go live with Jenna. And real quick, because I've read this like three times, and I'm not sure who the hell Polly is, I'm assuming that is this other brother who lost their job. Yes, that's my assumption. Sure. One night, Jake and Yumna were on the ca- were on the couch watching a movie under a blanket. When Yumna left, Polly went off on Jenna and Jake, mainly Jenna. The short of it was he was worried that Jake was going to have to become Muslim to be with Yumna. Went on about how Dad wouldn't approve of this. For some reason, was completely fixated on them sharing a blanket during this argument. It ended up with Jenna kicking Polly out of her apartment. Here's the thing. Yumna's parents love Jake. They've never had a problem with the two of them dating. My brother ended up becoming living with me in Jersey. My wife is not happy about this with my brother being here. He's not really doing anything to help up and keeps bringing up Jenna and Jake. My brother and I, so this is Polly, my brother and I have gotten into a couple of arguments about it. My wife is at her wit's end and wants him to leave. I'm con- I've convinced her to give him a second chance and to let him pull his weight. He's still my brother. If I kick him out, he's got nowhere to go. Jenna's in New York and wants nothing to do with him. I don't know where his friends live. He won't listen to me and I just don't know what to do. So this is a whole family situation. This is a whole family situation. So how do we deal? What, what's our nickname for 
a complicated family. Is it is it Michael Stivic and and in this case Archie <laughs> is his brother and not his uh, father in law? Oh god, I feel like no because right. I respect Archie Bunker too much for this shit. Oh, fair enough. Um, okay, at least as a character, I don't know. We mentioned an actor from The Godfather recently. Should we try and go with that? <laughs> That's a family. Absolutely. Oh, I love it. <laughs> There's Michael, there's there's Don Corleone, there's oh God. Sonny. Son, Sonny's James Caan, right? Uh, yes. Okay, so, so in the novel, they talk a lot about how big a penis he has. They do. So so this is Michael Corleone, and appropriately, Polly sounds like he could be a Corleone. Uh, Paul, in, in this case, I think Polly is Sonny, Jake is Frito. And uh, I don't remember the sister's name, but that's Jenna. Uh, I'm going to look it up. Uh, Y'all, The Godfather is not a kind movie to women. I'm just going to say that. No, it is not. Or Um, Frito. No, I'm a little (laughs) sad that we're talking about Frito here just because Frito's... Fredo's a piece of shit, and I feel like this little little dude never did anything wrong. Godfather 1, I don't think he... I don't think he actually betrays uh, Michael until Godfather 2. So this is strictly Godfather 1 Fredo. Or what's the name of the kid that uh, he Don Corleone's playing with in the garden when he has a heart attack? That could be Jake. Oh, no, 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 no. You know what? Jake can be Tom. There you go. Because he's the half-brother and Tom was the adopted brother. Perfect. Okay. So that works great. I'm trying to look up Connie. <laughs> Connie is the sister. All right. We've, we've... So for these purposes, we're dealing with Michael... Who's dealing with Sonny? There's also Tom and there's Connie involved. We've set the scene. We've cast the actors. <laughs> okay, Michael. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Michael Corleone. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Christ. Uh, so I gotta. St- I'm trying to think where to start where to start here as far as what to do um ask uh ask sonny how much call of duty he played uh so you say he won't listen to you i'll understand that he doesn't listen Mm, i'm not sure how to get him to listen because the fact of the matter is he's clearly working off of some really really deeply ingrained dumbass stereotypes this idea that you know you have to convert in order to be with that individual like are there families that traditional yes absolutely there are families for whom like you know you have to convert to such and such as religion in order to be with them long term but there's a couple of things your brother's clearly missing for one thing they're fucking 15 um, for another, you know, they, you're right. Like you, you said flat out, like Yuma's parents are cool with this. Like they're, they're fine. They're, they don't have that issue. Um, as far as what to do about Sonny, Michael. Kay is the name of Michael's girlfriend, later wife, in The Godfather. So Kay clearly has a problem with him. And Kay is right to have a problem with him because it sounds like Sonny's a piece of shit. Yeah. Sonny's not just a piece of shit to your little brother and your sister. 
he's also clearly a piece of shit to be living with you and still bringing all of this up. Your brother's a piece of shit. So. I know he's your brother and you want to take care of him. That said. There is such a thing as toxic family. There is family that you don't talk to. I have family members I don't talk to. Because they're toxic. You know? They just are. When they die, I will be very sad for the family of mine that will be sad that they are dead. But I will not feel bad that they are dead. Because some of your family is just toxic and shitty. Part of being an adult, part of being a person unto yourself, is being able to recognize that. And state up front, like, okay, if I see this family, I'm not going to cause a problem. But I don't like them. I don't want them around. I don't want them in my life. I don't want them spreading their bullshit. Your brother, I get that you love him, but he's toxic as fuck. So, the best thing to do, especially considering that Sonny is... How old is Sonny? I think it says here... Okay, it doesn't actually... I don't think it says here... Doesn't doesn't give anybody's age except for Connie. Or Connie slash Jenna. Yeah. But I'm assuming that if you are married, your brother was working as a vet. He's he's an adult at the very least. Um, Jenna was right to kick him out. You would be right to kick him out. I get that he has nowhere to go. I get that it's pandemic. You know, I, I, we, t- we talked on the tenant-landlord situation before. Um with Mr. Heckles' situation that it sucks to kick somebody out during a pandemic. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want him to be homeless. I don't. Maybe you don't kick him out with nowhere to land, but you should be making arrangements to remove him. There is a version of this where you tell your brother, listen, you got to get out. I'm going to help you find a place. I'm going to help you try and find whether it's we're, we're going to Craigslist roommate you or something. We're going to try and find you some like shitty remote work just so that you can pay your bills. But you cannot be here anymore because you're toxic as fuck. That would be saintly of you, Michael, because your brother is toxic as fuck. Yeah. And I know you don't want to kick him out, but the options are not kick him out on his ass and abide by this bullshit. You need to remove him. And if you want, if you care about him, you remove him, giving him somewhere to land as best as he can. But he's got to take responsibility for himself. He's got to take responsibility for what a piece of shit he's being. And you should never stop reminding him that he is a piece of shit about your brother and about your sister and about your brother's girlfriend. You should, every single time he brings them up, you should be telling him, shut up, you piece of shit. And I'm being literal about that because he is a politeness is how evil thrives. I'm not telling you your brother is evil, but your brother is got is spewing a lot of evil and you need to kill that. You need to make him afraid to voice this opinion. Yes. Because it is not an opinion that is worthwhile. It is divorced from reality. It is cemented in some kind of weird, deeply rooted racism and stereotyping, and it does not deserve your respect. So if you want to be a good person, help Sonny find a place to land, get him the fuck out, 
and explain to him that he will not be welcome back into the fold until he gets his fucking shit together and stops being so goddamn awful to your little brother. And if he, if that's, if that's enough for him to decide to leave on his own, so be it. That's his decision. He's an adult. Your little brother's a minor and is doing nothing wrong. Your older sister is taking care of your minor little brother. If there's a place to draw the line in the sand, it's with them, not with him. Andy? Yeah, so I've got a couple of opinions that are maybe a little more lenient and then a couple more uh, that are a little more harsh. I, I, by and large, very much agree with you, Alex, on this issue. Uh, you know, Michael, I think... It can be as simple. You don't even have to be super nice to Sonny about like, listen, dude, I get it. This is messed up times. It's not right that you lost your job, but you were under my house and you will absolutely tow whatever I say the line is, or you can find somewhere else to leave. And you don't even have to help Sonny find somewhere else. It, it, it sounds like you feel bad for your brother. I get that. You don't want to kick him out, but the fact of the matter is he's being an unrepentant asshole. Um, you know, we, we talked on a previous episode about the correlation between like people lose their jobs. They get upset. They get angry. They start like manifesting that anger towards different things. I think it'd be worth it to have a conversation with your brother to say, look, man, do you really like have an issue with this? Or are you just looking for something to be mad about because, uh, life sucks right now and you lost your job. You want to lean into family. I, I feel like you do bring up the fact that, uh, Tom is your family too. He is by blood, even though he's, you know, your, your half sibling, he's still your sibling. He still deserves, uh, love and respect and is allowed to have a relationship that he wants to have bring up how, uh, Yumna's family has no issue with this relationship. Bring up the fact that nobody is saying Tom is going to have to convert. Even if he did, that's his decision to make, not, uh, not Sonny's. But no one's saying that's going to happen. So this fear is completely unfounded. This anger is absolutely unfounded. And your brother is being a colossal asshole and disruptive to the rest of your family at large. The best way to keep the peace would be to remove him. And you you make that his decision whether or not he needs to remove himself. And then, yeah, you you can help him find stuff, but... At the end of the day, you can also say, my house, my rules, shut up or get the fuck out. Um, I absolutely agree that this behavior needs to be quashed. Your your brother needs to do some higher thinking and really re-examine what his biases are and get right with that. To your immediate situation, you're the man of the house. You're the godfather. Marlon Brando had a heart attack in the garden already. This is your shit. You get to run it. Um, and if Sonny cannot abide by that, Sonny can go find something else to do. You know, maybe worst case scenario for your brother, maybe he has to go sleep on a park bench for a couple nights, realizes, oh my God, this fucking sucks. I don't want to have to do this. And 
is able to like, if nothing else, shut the hell up and then come back and be a more respectful tenant in your situation. I like that. I'm sorry. Are you done? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. I like that. I, in situations like this where people have fucked up family situations, I always feel the need to remind people. Andy, you've heard the term blood is thicker than water, right? Indeed. Do you understand that that is not how the saying actually goes? You know, I think I've heard that, but I don't remember the actual, like, point. So go ahead and enlighten. The actual saying is, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Which means the exact opposite. It means that the family you choose, the people you decide to let into your life, are more meaningful and more important and worth more than those you are related to by just the accident of blood. So I will say to you this, not because you have dear friends and chosen family with whom you need to solidify your bonds, Michael Corleone, but I say this to you to remind you that just because someone is family does not mean that they are not an asshole who should be put in their place for being an asshole. I love it. You know, hearing you say that, I don't know if I ever actually did know that that was the actual saying. So thank you for bringing that up. That really makes me happy. Um, (laughs) If you know an asshole... If you know an asshole, if you have a relationship problem, if, if you have uh, maybe a family member or even a roommate who's being an unreconcilable dick, if, uh, if, if you have anything that could be quantified as a relationship question, we are always more than happy to take those at our email at uh, lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com where we promise to read them. Absolutely. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Um, I'd choose you as family either way. So uh, we, we, we cool. Um, you can also... <laughs> oh, Jesus. You can also follow us uh, on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Uh, and follow us there to keep up with new episodes or get updates or... CSB funny? I don't know, man. Retweet weird shit that's related to our topics. Our Twitter feed is strange. We're really good at that last one, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, if you want to follow me, Andy Bowell, I am at Jovocop2113 on Twitter. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about maybe one of the greatest American directors ever. I have a film podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. I don't think any Rob Reiner v, uh, movies are on there, though This is Spinal Tap might be. I don't know. Would you say that's a cult movie? Uh, it might have made too much money, but I think it's definitely got a cult following. There's an argument that be made there. We might watch it anyway at some point. So if you want to keep up with that, you can find cult fiction at all of the same places Alex just listed. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at a underscore x underscore r u i z, and um, you know what? Thanks for listening, y'all. We really appreciate it. As always, tell your enemies.